Record numbers of migrants crossing the U.S. border, a dire humanitarian crisis. The lead starts right now. With border crossings at an all-time high, the Biden administration warns times ahead will likely get even worse now that a key immigration policy that had been used to turn away migrants has expired. The scenes at the U.S.-Mexico border today as we learn of two migrant children who died in U.S. custody. All this as the debt crisis intensifies. We won't, in some cases, be able to pay our troops. The impact as the nation gets closer to defaulting and not being able to pay its bills. Plus, surrendered a U.S. Marine veteran turning himself in on manslaughter charges after holding a homeless street artist in a deadly chokehold on a New York City subway. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today in our world lead with the anxiety and uncertainty at the U.S.-Mexico border. The border is crowded and chaotic and overwhelmed. Record-setting levels of migrants are entering the U.S., including nearly 10,000 yesterday and the day before. For many migrants, they have little access right now to food or to water. The only clothes they have are the ones on their back. And according to U.S. officials, many of them are falling victims to scams, if not victims to worse than that. And yes, while right now the scenes at the border crossings might not be quite as bad as some had predicted, Biden administration officials anticipate that the situation will get much worse. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, more popularly known as ICE, just announced it is adding 5,000 detention beds. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is warning that overcrowding will get even worse because the White House lost a court battle overnight that would have allowed some migrants to be released without court notices. It's a very harmful ruling, and the Department of Justice is considering uh, our options. You know, the practice uh, that the uh, court has prevented us uh, from using is a practice that prior administrations have used uh, to relieve overcrowding. Today, we're also learning about the tragic deaths of two young migrants dying in the care of the U.S. government. One was 17 years old, the other just four. CNN's Ed Lavendera starts off our coverage from El Paso, Texas, with a closer look at what migrants are going through as they reach the border. Title 42, the border policy used to expel many migrants to Mexico and their home countries during the pandemic, is over. And so far today, this moment has not triggered the historic wave of migrants rushing to cross the border that was predicted. Communities have been preparing for the lifting of Title 42 for months, and so has the federal government. We've been very, very clear that there are lawful, safe, and orderly pathways to seek relief in the United States. And if one arrives at our southern border, one is going to face tougher consequences. In the days leading up to last night's deadline, border officials saw a surge of migrants. About 155,000 migrants were estimated to be in shelters and on streets in Mexico waiting to enter the U.S., a source familiar with federal estimates said. In El Paso, thousands were waiting to be processed outside a border gate. We're prioritizing those most vulnerable populations. We're doing this as quickly and as efficiently and as safely as we possibly can. That number now down to a couple hundred, says the city's mayor. Our goal was to make sure that no one was on the street, the children, women, young kids were not exploited and weren't taken care of. Only about 150 migrants are currently in El Paso's city-run shelters. 
In January, U.S. Customs and Border Protection opened this massive tent processing facility in the El Paso area, about 20 miles from the U.S.-Mexico border. It's designed to be able to hold about 1,000 migrants at a time. And as you can see, construction crews are working to expand. And we're told by CBP officials in June they'll have room for another 1,000 migrants to hold at this facility. In Brownsville, the scene is similar. Dozens of buses line up near an intake facility. But a major humanitarian group in the area tells CNN they only had one bus of migrants arrive today. Migrants will still risk their lives to make it to the U.S. And from now on, people who cross the border illegally will face a tougher path to requesting asylum. Many will be deported, like this group who were shackled and led onto a repatriation flight like this one leaving for Guatemala on Thursday. So Jake, right now everyone here on the border trying to figure out what is going to come next. This alleyway in the days before Title 42 was lifted was filled with migrants sleeping in this alleyway behind a migrant shelter. If you should look at live pictures from a drone shot that we have several miles away from where I am here, uh, you can see just how empty that is. It's an area where some 2,500 migrants had gathered to turn themselves into immigration authorities over the last few days. And in our conversations with various uh, immigrant advocates and uh, people who've been helping migrants here in El Paso, they think that this is kind of uh, people waiting and assessing of this new landscape after Title 42. And they're concerned that in the days and weeks ahead, all of this could change dramatically once again. Jake? All right, Ed Lavendera in El Paso, Texas for us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in CNN's Priscilla Alvarez. Uh, so, Priscilla, you, you were part of a briefing from Homeland Security officials uh, earlier today. Um, things not as bad as some people had predicted today, but they think it's definitely going to get worse. The challenge is still there. A senior Homeland Security official said there was no, quote, substantial increase overnight when Title 42 expired, but they're still seeing elevated patterns. So this ends up boiling down to logistics and the challenges there. And when it comes to that, high numbers and not facilities equipped to take care of them. And that's overcrowding. You mentioned this earlier. There was a ruling last night that blocks the administration from releasing migrants without court dates. Now, that is a mechanism that they sometimes use when they're trying to alleviate overcrowding. Without that, it gives them one less tool in their toolbox when they're trying to deal with all of these numbers. Now, I spoke to a source this morning. They told me, look, litigation was part of the planning. It was baked into a degree. They knew that the administration has been hit with lawsuits when trying to roll out border policy. Now they're trying to see what the next steps are going to be, assessing and knowing that while migrant numbers might be low right now, they're also assessing what the next steps are as these new enforcement measures are put in place. And so they know a challenge is still around the corner. Yeah, it's, it's rough. And today we learned about two unaccompanied migrant children uh, who died uh, in U.S. custody. Uh, one was 17, one was four. It's just awful. What, what do we know about this? This is rare. This happens in Health and Human Services Department custody. They're charged with the care of unaccompanied migrant children, so kids who cross the border on their own. The 17-year-old died this week. He was, un he was at a shelter in Florida. He was found unconscious, and he was taken to the hospital where, after resuscitation, he was pronounced dead. In reporting this, Jake, I learned of another death this year by a congressional notice in March. A four-year-old died. In the congressional notice that I obtained, it said that she was, quote, medically fragile. She was taken to the hospital after cardiac arrest. She had her biological father by her side and was later pronounced dead. So two cases that the administration says that they are saddened by, that they will look into and investigate. 
But of course, just another development in all of this. Is, are they going to give us more information? Because that's not a lot of information. That's pretty opaque. And these are children we're talking about. They are going to give more details as they do. I have covered Inspector General reports before, and that is where we learn the most when it comes to the situations of these children. Transparency is always important. Thank you so much, Priscilla. Appreciate it. Joining us now to talk about this, Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas, um, a Democrat. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. Do you think the Biden administration is prepared for how bad this humanitarian crisis could get? Uh, These facilities already uh, seem massively overwhelmed, and, and without question, it's going to get worse. Yeah, I think that they've done a lot to prepare and they're doing more to prepare. But I think it's also important, Jake, to to acknowledge that you're right. There are more folks that are coming because Title 42 kept more people in Mexico for a longer period of time. But my Republican colleagues, uh, the way they describe this is complete chaos. It's the end of the world. And you see, I think everybody acknowledges, acknowledges today that that has not been the case. I understand that there could be surges, that it, there could be more people later on. But it's 24-7, world gone wild, endless chaos, the world is ending. Uh, In fact, we are able as a country, and we have been for generations, to handle migration in a sane and effective and orderly way when we commit the resources to it and we do it. Yeah, I mean, the concern I'm expressing is just hundreds of thousands of people without food, without water, without clothing, many of them kept in these confined quarters. We just heard about these two uh, children, 117, 114 who died in U.S. custody. Uh, I'm not trying to scare anybody about it. I'm worried about it uh, on humanitarian means. Yeah, no, look, there's no question that the administration, like administrations before, needs to step up and Congress needs to respond to provide the resources to make sure that these people are safe, that, that they're being taken care of temporarily while they are placed with relatives or others and wait for their asylum claims to be heard. Uh, And so there is a lot of work and there are a lot of resources that go into that. In recent days, thousands of federal agents and troops have been surged to the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, That despite knowing this day was coming for, frankly, two years. Um, It doesn't seem as though the administration is fully prepared uh, for how to handle this. It's been a challenge, right? And like I said, I think Title 42, keeping Title 42 in place so long First, I think because the Biden administration didn't move to end it as soon as they could have. But then after that, because Republicans went to court and got the court to force the administration to keep it going for longer, that created a buildup of folks on the other side of the border who were being taken advantage of by cartels and really were being the victims of very brutal crimes from kidnapping, rape, murder, all of those things. Uh, And so so now, you know, you've got a backlog of people who are trying to have their asylum claims heard here in the United States. And it is a challenge, no doubt about it. After House Republicans passed their border security bill yesterday, you called it a, quote, cruel and counterproductive piece of legislation, unquote. Do you think if you and, let's say, Congressman Tony Gonzalez, a Republican uh, from uh, a border district, were, got in a room and just hashed things out, that you could come up with some sort of bill that provided some humanitarian relief, some sort of sane asylum process, also secured the border so we wouldn't keep going through this issue? I mean, is there a bipartisan solution there? I understand the parties don't have an interest in it right now, but is there a compromise that could theoretically be reached? You know, I keep holding out hope because, look, I don't think you should be in this job if you've just completely given up hope on big issues like this. So I I still believe that there is a possibility 
for people to come together of different parties and come to an agreement. And remember, in the not too distant past, that's exactly what happened in 2013, 2014, when a bipartisan bill passed through the U.S. Senate with flying colors, 68 uh, votes, Republican and Democrat. And then John Boehner, who, as you recall, was Speaker of the House at the time, refused to put it on the floor for a vote in the House of Representatives. Now, the, the part of the tough thing since then, uh, as you know, is that both Ted Cruz after that and Donald Trump in an even more forceful way uh, made immigration the biggest boogeyman issue for the Republican Party and it and really brought it, brought it to the forefront among pro Republican primary voters in a way that it had not been for some time. So that is the extra hurdle that exists today that didn't exist, I think, in 2013, 2014. But look, I respect Tony being outspoken within the Republican conference uh, that some of the, the bills that he's seen proposed by fellow Republicans have been cruel and been nonsensical. Uh, I, I respect him a lot for being able to stand up and say that. But you need more than one Tony Gonzalez in order to get a bipartisan agreement uh, and to do something productive. I'm just thinking about locking you two in a room. That's just a plan of mine, my own yeah. personal plan. Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas, thanks so much. And next hour, I'm going to ask National Security Council spokesman John Kirby about the criticism of the White House for its handling of the situation at the border. Up next this hour, default feeling more real with time running out on a plan to raise the nation's, nation's debt ceiling before we run out of cash to pay our bills that could affect you directly. Plus, just in, word that Russia tried to destroy an American-made Patriot air de defense missile in Ukraine. Stay with us. Topping our money lead, time is running out to avoid what economists say would be an unequivocal financial catastrophe. I'm, of course, talking about the United States government defaulting on its national debt for the first time in history a likely recession, a pause in Social Security and Medicare benefits, an overall decline in the living standards Americans currently enjoy, just to name a few effects from what would be a massive economic crisis, despite what Donald Trump falsely said the other night. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz is here to explain the real-world impacts. I, I do want to start, uh, however, uh, with Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Um, Manu, President Biden, congressional leaders are not going to meet today. Uh, as previously scheduled, uh, we, we are told staff-level talks are taking place. What's going on? Yeah, still no deal yet, Jake. There have been staff-level talks that have occurred for today, for the past three days after that White House meeting that occurred earlier this week. I'm told by sources involved in the matter that there has been some progress, but there is a significant way to go. As one source indicated to me, this is, uh, this is a process that usually takes months to get hammered out. They're trying to do this in a matter of days because for some time, the White House has said no negotiations, simply raise the national debt limit without any conditions and any spending cuts attached. Republicans Republicans had the opposite view, said there must be negotiations, there must be spending cuts. House Republicans passed a bill to do just that. The Senate Democrats said that is dead on arrival. So at the moment, those staff-level talks are expected to continue through the weekend. Now, yesterday, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, indicated that it is progress that they are talking, but he said the negotiators should have been in there in the room in February. If this were staff meetings happening on February 1st, I'd call them productive. When you're sitting here with a few 15 days to go, it really seems to me that the president finally felt the pressure for 100 days of not having a meeting with me. 
but there is just not much time here. The Congressional Budget Office today estimated that potentially a default could occur in the first two weeks of June. That means a deal must be reached in hand probably by next week, drafting into legislative text, selling it to both chambers of Congress, getting it through the very slow-moving United States Senate. All very complicated hurdles ahead as the two sides are still discussing a range of different spending cuts, whether it's caps on discretionary spending, clawing back unused COVID relief money, new work requirements on social safety net programs like Medicaid, all issues that are on the table. But can they get there and can they get the support from Congress? All huge questions with this economic calamity looming. Uh, Vanessa, since January, um, the U.S. government has taken what it describes as uh, extraordinary measures to prevent default. Uh, But on June 1st, uh, the Treasury Secretary says those will no, no longer be enough. What happens then? Well, this means self-inflicted pain on the U.S. economy and everyday Americans. We are talking about a possible recession. We are looking at the potential for the stock market to tank, which then affects people's 401ks. You're talking about employment spiking, and you are most certainly talking about a pause on Social Security checks going out and Medicare checks. You're also talking about an impact to veterans' benefits and an impact on our military. Listen to Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who is also raising the alarm. Uh, What it would mean uh, realistically realistically for us is that uh, we won't, in some cases, be able to pay our troops uh, with with, uh, any uh, any degree of predictability. And that predictability is really, really important for us. Uh, But this would have a a real impact on the pockets of our our troops and, and our civilians. And the list goes on. This would have an impact on borrowing costs. So we're talking about student loans, auto loans, mortgage rates. And, Jake, we actually don't know the full scope of the economic impact because we have never been in this position before. The U.S. has never defaulted on its debt. That is why it is so critical for Washington to come up with a deal, Jake. Vanessa, mortgage rates have already skyrocketed over the last year. How could a U.S. default make it even worse, do you think? Well, as borrowing costs go up, mortgage rates go up. And according to Zillow, we could see 22 percent increase in housing costs if mortgage rates top 8 percent. Shelter is the biggest cost of expense that Americans pay right now, Jake. They certainly do not want to be paying anymore. Vanessa Yurkiewicz and Manu Raju, thanks to both of you. Coming up, the likely annoyance today for House Republicans from a witness who called their subpoena political theater. Stay with us. In our Law and Justice lead, that's a new lead we got for you guys. House Republicans are pushing forward in their investigation to determine if Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's felony charges against former President Trump were, quote, politically motivated. And Bragg indicted Trump last month on 34 counts of falsifying business records for his alleged role in that hush money payment to adult porn star and director Stormy Daniels. Today, one of Bragg's former top investigators, Mark Pomerantz, was forced to sit for a deposition with the House Judiciary Committee behind closed doors. Pomerantz, you might remember, quit Bragg's office after working there for about a year, and then he wrote a book criticizing Bragg for not bringing charges against Trump. This was last year. CNN's Paula Reed and Laura Coates are, are with me. So, uh, Paula, let me start with you. I want to play uh, Republican Congressman Daryl Issa commenting on Pomerantz's testimony earlier today. The witness has not cooperated in any way, shape, or form, has simply appeared and I would characterize as taking the fifth on every single question. He has answered no substantive questions whatsoever. 
So we obviously don't know what actually happened behind closed doors. I have no reason to believe that Congressman Issa is not being accurate in his description. Um, How do you think Republicans are responding to this? They're clearly going to be frustrated, right? This is part of their investigation to look at whether the ongoing criminal case in New York against former President Trump is politically motivated. Interesting, though, though, I was a little surprised. Uh, Congressman Jim Jordan came out. He was asked what they were going to do next. And he said, I don't know. I'm going to consult with the other members. I'm going to talk to lawyers. It was pretty restrained for him. But Pomerantz is arguing that you can invoke the fifth for several different reasons. He said that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has asked him not to discuss the case to protect what he says or claims of privilege and confidentiality. And many people may remember he's written a book where he discussed the case, but he said now that there's been an indictment, things have changed, so I can no longer discuss it. But I'm sure they're frustrated, and I'm curious to see what they'll do next. So this is, uh, Laura, what Pomerant said in his opening statement that we got a copy of, uh, defending uh, pleading the fifth. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, quote, this deposition is for show. We are gathered here because Donald Trump supporters would like to use these proceedings to attempt to obstruct and undermine the criminal case pending against him and to harass, intimidate, and discredit anyone who investigates uh, or charges him, unquote. What, what do you make of the Pomerantz argument? Well, if you were to take out a few words here and there, it's a similar argument that's been made before in the past when there were subpoenas issued, some of the same committee members on issues of January 6th and beyond. And that was one of the issues back then of what, grand, what ground will you have to stand on when one day you want to issue a subpoena and somebody retorts with this is politically motivated? You're seeing a little bit of is the chickens coming home to roost. But on a grander issue here, remember, If there is an ongoing investigation, let alone grand jury testimony or otherwise, you cannot disclose that a judicial order. And so now that there's an active investigation, he has some pretty um, firm ground to stand on to say, listen, a judge ought to decide whether I can be forthcoming. And D.A. Bragg has already sued, essentially saying you cannot subpoena somebody on this issue. The waters have been muddied, though, because of the book that was written. But I would note it was written at a time, I believe, when he thought there was not going to be any investigation. Right, and then, Bragg, did, and then Bragg did and bring then a case. And he did. So now it's one of those conundrums that a court would have to look at and say, well, was the chicken now coming home to roost? Or have you actually created an opportunity where this can now be allowed? So I want to turn to E. Jean Carroll, uh, who successfully uh, sued Donald Trump uh, and is going to get $5 million from him if, if all, all goes through. Um, she's now weighing uh, whether or not to bring another defamation suit against Donald Trump after the verdict in which she, she won, uh, after his comments in the CNN town hall. This, just to remind you, this is part of what he said when he was making fun of her sexual assault allegations. They said he didn't rape her. And they did I didn't do anything didn't. else either. You know what? Because I have no idea who the hell she is. But Mr. President, I don't know who I, this woman is. Add- they said, sir, don't do it. This is a fake story, and you don't want to give it credibility. One That's thing why you, I didn't go. One thing you did do in this. And I swear, and I've never done that, and I swear to I have no idea who the hell, she's a Mr. whack President. job. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable. This is a day after he was found guilty of defamation, ordered to pay $5 million. Uh, he goes and defames her again. Yeah. Does she have a case? Well, he's pretty much saying something very similar to what she sued over. This would be her third defamation lawsuit uh, against the former president. One has been lingering out because he made the comments against her in that case when he was president. But look, I get the question is, what are your damages, right? They said this is going to be on the table. This has only been, what, a day or two 
it seems like perhaps her energy, her, her financial resources would be better spent focusing on actually getting that $5 million, because that might be a little tricky. We know the former president has filed an appeal. We don't expect that to be successful. But actually collecting that $5 million might be a better use of her energy. So I'm skeptical that she would actually pursue this, particularly when it's just not clear what her damages would be. And, and Laura, former President Trump, he's faced numerous allegations of sexual abuse and harassment and more from, from multiple women. But th- this was a rare moment of accountability uh, for him. Also a, a moment of vindication uh, for lots of women across the world who feel like their stories are not taken seriously. Um, but we should note, Eugene Carroll was only able to bring her case after New York changed the law and it opened a one-time window for adult su- survivors of a sexual assault to, so that they could file a civil case. Right. Well, first, her litigiousness will be up to her, what her appetite is long term. But when you're talking about defamation cases in particular, you have to separate opinion versus defamatory language, which essentially is a false assertion of what you know to be a fact. You did it with actual malice. She is a public figure. And you have defamed her in a way that undermines reputation. To your larger point of what has changed from day one to day two in that 24-hour window. But overall, in terms of vindication, you know, it is really a testament to hearing the laughter in that crowd on the day of that town hall which frankly evoked a visceral reaction from anyone who has appreciated the journey of a survivor. I've been a sexual assault prosecutor in the past. Delayed reporters are often not only defamed, they are disregarded, and the idea of even coming forward is hard. And so hearing the laughter reinforces the long road ahead. So as far as vindication, if that town hall particular moment is any indication of how people view even her victory, we've got a long way to go before Me Too means something. Yeah, I mean, the idea, like, well, why didn't she come uh, forward uh, sooner? Why didn't you scream? It, well, All this sort of things. No, 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 say. but just why didn't you come forward uh, yeah. sooner? Listen to the laughter yeah, in that after room. A jury, yeah, the, unanimously. The, the, I mean, that's why. That's why people yeah. don't come forward. Paula Reed, Laura Coates, uh, thanks uh, both of you for being here. Just in what we're learning about a Russian attempt to destroy a powerful piece of American weaponry. And we're back with our world lead now. U.S. officials say Russia tried but failed to destroy a U.S.-made Patriot Air Defense System missile in Ukraine. It's arguably Ukraine's most prized piece of American military equipment. It's fitted with powerful radar to detect incoming targets at long range. Let's get right to CNN's Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon. Uh, first of all, Oren, were they trying to defend? Uh, d- did they try to uh, hit a defense system or defense uh, system missile? And what more can you tell us about the flubbed Russian attack? Jake, we know that the Russians were trying to shoot uh, or target the Patriot battery itself, likely its emissions radar, and we'll get to that in one second. Let's go to where this story started. Last week, for the first time that we know about, Ukrainians successfully used the Patriot missile system provided by the U.S., Germany, and Holland to target an incoming Kinzhal or or Killjoy missile, a powerful Russian hypersonic missile, essentially an air-launched ballistic missile, It's a significant event. It's the first known successful use of the Patriot system by Ukraine and, crucially, the first known interception of this hypersonic system, demonstrating the capability. Now we've learned from two U.S. officials what it is that the Russians were targeting when this missile was intercepted. And, Jake, we learned the Russians were targeting the Patriot system itself, trying to take out one of the most advanced pieces of equipment we've given to Ukraine. Orrin, how did the Russians detect the Patriot system? It's likely, according to these officials, that the Russians were able to detect the emissions from the radar itself. To detect incoming threats at long range, the Patriot radar gives off a powerful emission signal of radiation. It's likely the Russians used this to get a general sense 
of where the Patriot battery was located, and then they could use satellites or other forms of signal intelligence to try to zero in on where the missile itself is to try to target it. And that's what likely led to this targeting. Ukrainians able to intercept that incoming missile, one of the highest-end missiles that Russia has. All right, CNN's Oren Lieberman with breaking news at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. In Ukraine, Zelensky's troops are gearing up, according to a senior U.S. military official, striking weapons depots, command centers, and artillery systems, part of the expected preparations for Ukraine's big counteroffensive against Russia. As Russia says, Ukraine used long-range missiles to strike in Russian-occupied Luhansk. That's part of Ukraine, but it is occupied by Russia. CNN's Nick Robertson is in eastern Ukraine uh, with for us, uh, up close to Ukraine's new front lines. Guys, yes, Vietnam. Amid shell-smashed trees, Ukrainian troops figure out how to get us close to their new hard-won gains around Bakhmut. Go behind me, distance five meters. He's uh, going uh, last. Okay. How far from the Russian lines here? Closer, eight, nine hundred meters. What lessons here about a much-anticipated bigger Ukraine counteroffensive? You can see here how the ground is drying out, how wet it was before and how hard it would be for the armoured vehicles to get through. The battlefield is changing. Now summer's coming. And that's everything for the counteroffensive. So we have to go a bit faster here because they take a lot of incoming fire here. Thank you. Oh, nice one. If not for the war, it would be a lovely walk. Little cover here from shelling. Uh, go, go, go. Little drone. Drone. We've just come in here. So we've heard a drone above, so we've got some cover in here. Hopefully it won't see us down here. Getting closer, closer to the Russian lines. This trench, one of several, and a new minefield, positioned to block Russian troops about 600 metres away from a counter-attack. Out of sight, north and south of here, more Ukrainian troops advancing, building on the recent gains here. Ukraine's Western allies say that shaping operations for the big counteroffensive are already underway. Commanders here won't say if this is part of that counteroffensive, but the gains they've had around Bakhmut are a huge morale boost for Ukrainian troops. How does it feel to be in the battle now and to have actually, after all this time, taken more territory? I love it, actually. I love it because I'm with my family, with guys, that's my family. But success, not all that's whetting appetite for victory. Mounting Russian atrocities, fueling anger. We all just want to take our territory back and kill maximum possible Russians we can. Do you think the Russians understand that? No, I don't think so. They are going to get killed, all of them. It's going to be a tough fight for you, though. Yeah, also. But we are ready for this. It's our land. As we leave, there are more explosions. Then this. Run! We don't ask. We just run and keep running. (laughs) We're hearing a drone, so we're running. They've got their armoured troop transporter ready. Yeah, getting back in now. Drones overhead, more artillery coming. It's ancient Soviet equipment, more modern NATO armour, 
busy elsewhere on the battlefield. So right now, those other offensives, that's the air raid siren going off here. It does that from time to time. Um, right now, uh, those other offenses that are going off in parallel with that operation by the unit we saw, they're still underway. We just heard, well... We can't say for reporting restrictions here, but certainly heard some action uh, just about in the past minute, perhaps related to, perhaps related to, to that offensive. But interestingly today, for the first time, the Kremlin admitted that they've lost ground in and around Bakhmut. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the Wagner mercenary boss, admitted the same, but still at odds with the Kremlin. It speaks to Russia beginning perhaps to lose some of its grip on Bakhmut. And who knows about other areas too, Jake? All right, Nick Robertson in eastern Ukraine, thanks so much. Coming up, an author who said no thanks to a major deal because the publisher had asked her to delete specific parts of her book. Stay with us. Now it's time for today's Buried Lead. That's what we call stories we feel are not getting enough attention. Children's author Maggie Tokoda Hall, Tokoda Hall was excited when publishing giant Scholastic offered to license her book, which is called Love in the Library, for use in classrooms. Love in the Library is a story of how her grandparents fell in love while imprisoned at an incarceration camp for Japanese Americans, this one in Idaho during World War II. It's a shameful part of our nation's history, but an important one. However, Scholastic had a condition for the author. In order to license her book, they required that she remove the word racism from her author's note. And they insisted that she delete the sentence that contextualized her grandparents' experience as part of, quote, the deeply American tradition of racism. Dakota Hall refused, and she declined Scholastic's offer. She joins us now. So thanks so much for joining us. So my, I, I understand that, that even after this story came to light and Scholastic apologized publicly, they said you could use your original author's note unchanged, but you still said no to the deal. Is that right? And if so, why? That's correct. Thank you for having me today. Um, it is correct. I did still say no. So after I went public with this, I had a meeting with Scholastic. And in it, I had three concerns, which was I wanted an honest and transparent recounting of what had happened because I was told that what had happened to me was against their own company policy. I wanted to know how they were going to make sure this didn't happen to other marginalized authors going forward because I did understand that I was also standing as a proxy for a lot of other authors in this moment. And lastly, and most importantly, I wanted to know how they were going to be, how they planned to combat the culture of book banning, since they've said that they unequivocally stand against it. And that's ultimately what this comes down to, is that they wanted to be able to court the audience that promotes book banning while still uh, sharing my story under an initiative about sharing Asian American and Pacific Islander voices. And from that meeting, I did not get a sense of any of those things. I was mm. not able to be given an honest recounting of what had happened. The plan for how they would make sure this never happened again did not seem terribly concrete. And their answer about how they plan to combat book banning included their curation in book collections like mine. And since we were there, because of a curatorial problem, I was not heartened. Yeah. And because I am standing in this place uh, for a lot of people, I'm not just standing here for myself. I didn't feel that I could accept an apology that did not make it clear how this would be prevented going forward. Well, shame on Scholastic. Um, and, and this was, uh, obviously, it's a personal story for you. This happened. The United States government rounded sure up Japanese Americans and Japanese in the United States and, and put them in incarceration camps. Th these camps 
uh, are, are part of America's uh, shameful past. We should note the United States government did not do this to German Americans or German citizens, uh, to fight, despite the fact that we were fighting them in World War II, Germans, Germany rather, not, well, not German we Americans. We did it. Yeah. We did it actually to about 10,000 German Americans. Oh, we did? Uh, That's also. news to me. Okay, I did, did. Not, I did not know uh, that. It's, it's not great news no matter which way we cut it. However, we didn't go down the entire East Coast and round up every single German American family the way that we did to Japanese American families down the West Coast. Right. It was so, a different thing, and I would say, you know, it's well, still I, racist and bad. Look, but, at, look at you educating me uh, live on television. <laughs> but my, my point is that, that they're, they're, you say that this is part of not just America's past, but America's present, um, obviously this nation, like many nations, has a history of racism. It aspires to be more, and that's one of the reasons why so many people love the United States. But why do you think it's part of America's present? Well, um, I would point you toward the family separation policy on our border that saw children put in cages, punished for the dream of wanting to be American. I would point you toward the mass incarceration of Black and Latino citizens of our country who are imprisoned and treated wildly differently by the police than white citizens. And um, I would point you toward the appointment of, point you toward the treatment of Muslim people on our borders who are still bearing the brunt as the scapegoats for 9-11. And so, you know, the, the idea that we have stopped being racist and that our government has stopped enforcing state-sanctioned racist policies is untrue. And the way that I talk about this with children often is, I tell them to imagine a bully and I say, one day the bully punches you, but the next day they apologize and they say, it wasn't fair. I shouldn't have punched you. But then you see them punch someone else and then they kick someone. Would you still accept that apology? Would you really believe that they had changed, that they were taking what they had done to you to heart? And that's largely how I feel about Japanese incarceration. Yes, we received an apology. We even received reparations which is something that my own family personally benefited from. Mm -hmm. But our government hasn't changed in a fundamental way. And so I don't accept that apology. All right. Well, food for thought. And look, all of this is just to prompt conversation and information and, 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 uh, and growth, right? Maggie, to cut it off. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, the next steps for the U.S. Marine veteran who turned himself in today for the chokehold death of Jordan Neely, that uh, homeless uh, man on that New York City subway. Stay with us. Welcome to the Lead Up, Jake Tapper. This hour, Oklahoma's governor is trying to defund the state's PBS station, which reaches every county in that state. Why, he says, the network that's home to Mr. Rogers, Sesame Street, and Masterpiece Theater is not appropriate for children. Plus, crowded confusion as a strict border policy ends. More than 10,000 migrants per day on average have crossed into the U.S. from Mexico this week. This as we learn about the deaths of two migrant children while in U.S. shelters. A top White House official is here. And leading this hour, a Marine veteran named Daniel Penny is in handcuffs today. He's been charged with second-degree manslaughter for that chokehold death of Jordan Neely on a New York subway train. Penny, as you might recall, restrained Neely after Neely began shouting that he was hungry, thirsty, and had little to live for. Penny's lawyer said he was trying to protect others. Neely's family thinks that he should have been charged with murder. CNN's Athena Jones reveals details from today's court hearing now. Daniel Penny, surrendering to face criminal charges in the death of homeless street performer Jordan Neely. He did so voluntarily. 
and with the sort of dignity and integrity that is characteristic of his history of service to this grateful nation. The 24-year-old former Marine, seen in a widely circulated video holding Neely in a chokehold for several minutes on a New York subway on May 1st, now stands accused of second-degree manslaughter for recklessly causing his death. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office bringing the charge after numerous witness interviews, a review of photo and video footage, and discussions with the medical examiner. The prosecutor telling the court witnesses observed Neely making threats and scaring passengers. Adding Penny approached Neely from behind and placed him in the chokehold, taking him down to the ground. When the train arrived at the next stop, Penny continued to hold Neely in the chokehold for several minutes, two other men helping to restrain his arms. At some point, Mr. Neely stopped moving. The defendant continued to hold Mr. Neely for a period and then released him. Penny's lawyers argue he risked his own life and safety to protect himself and fellow New Yorkers, resulting in the unintended and unforeseen death of Mr. Neely, adding they are confident Penny will be absolved of any wrongdoing once all the facts are known. Lawyers for the Neely family hailing Penny's arrest. We're closer now to justice than we were a week ago because Daniel Penny has been arrested even as they argued he should be charged with murder. There was no attack. Mr. Neely did not attack anyone. He did not touch anyone. He did not hit anyone. But he was choked to death. And that can't stand. That can't be what we represent. Neely's killing sparked days of demonstrations in New York City, with protesters demanding Penny's arrest. Meanwhile, a legal defense fund set up by Penny's supporters had raised more than $400,000 by Friday afternoon. Daniel, did you do it? Now prosecutors must prove their case. Good Before being released, Daniel Penny was ordered to hand over any passports he has, and he'll have to ask permission from New York State if he wants to leave the state. His next court date is set for July 17th. And Penny faces up to 15 years in prison if convicted. This is going to be a very closely watched case. Jake. Athena Jones, thanks so much. Let's talk about this with criminal defense attorney and CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson. Uh, Joey, good to see you. So um, Penny has been charged with second degree manslaughter. Based on the facts that we know so far, does that seem like an appropriate charge to you? So I think it does, Jake. Good to be with you for the following reason. When you look at second-degree manslaughter, what you're assessing is recklessness. Whenever you're looking at a homicide case, meaning someone is dead and they're dead for an unlawful purpose, prosecutors evaluate a number of things around intentions. If you want to charge murder as a prosecutor, you have to establish that it was the specific intent of the actual person who's accused to kill someone. In the event you charge manslaughter in the second degree, what you have to establish is that you may not have intended to kill the person, but as we look at him there, the suspect, the Marine, the issue is that you did so recklessly. What does recklessly mean under the law? It means you consciously disregarded the risk that your behavior could result in the death. And the argument here, and I think the prosecution's evaluations of the facts, rely upon the issue of the prolonged holding of the neck. The prosecutors will argue that you cannot tell me that if you hold someone's neck 
in such a prolonged way, in such a prolonged lock, that that's not reckless, that you should not have known that it could cause the result of death. And so that's why, under these circumstances, I think the prosecutors chose to pursue that charge as opposed to saying he intended to kill him under those facts and under those circumstances. It seems like a very precise charge um, where, generally speaking, prosecutors often are more aggressive in their charges. Uh, Do you think that they are just trying to find something that they could probably get a conviction of? It it would be difficult, I think, to prove uh, that Mr. Perry wanted to kill him, but much easier to say it was reckless just to hold him in a chokehold for as long as he did, and and obviously he died, and the facts speak for itself. So, Jake, they could have done less, though, right? Just to be clear, to have a full discussion, how about criminally negligent homicide, where you act in negligence, where your actions are careless, which is less than the manslaughter. So I think what prosecutors did is they evaluated the facts, evaluated the circumstances, and felt that there was something amiss. Like what? Yes, you can make the argument, for example, which we will hear made, of this was, this was justification under the law. He was attempting that is the accused, to protect other passengers who were in fear immediately of serious physical injury or death. That argument will be made. The prosecutors will argue, however, that where was the immediacy of fear of death by anyone, including you, number one? Number two, was the force you used disproportionate to the threat posed? That's the chokehold. That's why I think they say it's reckless. We'll see whether or not they sustain that charge. That's what a jury is for. They'll make that determination. I always learn something from you, Joey Jackson. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. I appreciate you, Jake. Thank you. With me now, uh, Jamani Williams, New York City public advocate, elected to assist New Yorkers with complaints uh, about government services and and regulations. Thank you so much for being here, Jamani. We appreciate it. Um, So you've complained that it took 10 days before charges were filed against Daniel Perry. He's now facing second-degree manslaughter. Neely's family, that's the the, the victim, the the homeless uh, gentleman who who was killed, uh, his family today said that, that they think Penny should be charged with murder. What do you think? And and are you satisfied with the district attorney's charge today? Well, thanks so much uh, for having me, Jake. It's always a pleasure. Um, I think if you were Neely's family, you would still be rightfully upset as well. Uh, What I have been saying and have been saying along with a lot of folks is that what we want to make sure doesn't happen is that someone could choke someone to death on camera, on video. Everyone can see it. And they leave the police precinct without even a desk appearance ticket. That's something that we all should have been able to call for and say there has to be charges against this person. Because I believe if it was reversed, uh, Jordan would not have been able to get off of Rikers from the bail that was set for him, whereas uh, Mr. Penny has raised over $400,000 and has posted $100,000 in bail. Uh, This is about fairness. This is about recognizing that a life was taken And even though he was black, homeless, and had mental illness, his life was worthy of someone being held accountable for taking it. Have you talked to anybody who was on the subway car today, that day? I have not, but I have heard from the journalist who, uh, as many have heard, taken the video and has made it clear uh, that Jordan didn't attack anyone, didn't attempt to attack anyone. And I have, uh, I'm I'm a New Yorker through and through, know the subway well. Most people who are here do and you know, sometimes there are feelings of uncomfort, and, and I get that and I understand that, and we as a society have to figure out how we address that, how we deal with that, how we provide services to people in need. What we have to all say is uh, part of that response cannot be summarily choking someone to death. And then on top of that, having to wait eight, 10 days 
uh, for someone to be charged in that death. So there is this larger issue here about um, people with mental health crises who, who are experiencing homelessness. I mean, that, that is an issue in major metropolitan areas, certainly in New York City. Um, Jordan Neely, and again, his death is a tragedy, of course, but Jordan Neely was on the New York City Department of Homeless Services uh, top 10 list, meaning he's, he, I'm sorry, top 50 list, meaning he'd been on the radar of officials as somebody with some of the most serious needs. Um, what are you, what is New York doing right now about the other 49 people on that list uh, to make sure that they don't hurt anybody or themselves and that nobody hurts them? That's a very important question. And as we mentioned, uh, Mr. Penny has raised over $400,000 in bail. I wonder how much Jordan could have raised for the water and the food that he was saying that he needed. Unfortunately, probably not that much. My office has put out several reports on how we actually can do exactly what you said. Uh, and unfortunately, we haven't seen a response that we would want in the state budget in previous city. I'm hoping we can see it in the budget that's coming forward now. And that is a continuum of care for people who cannot afford uh, to pay top dollar for that continuum of care. That's what's been missing. And I want to be clear, this is not just about involuntary hospitalizing people, because we have the ability to do that right now. Uh, and Jordan had been in the hospital. Unfortunately, he'd also been in Rikers Island. Neither of those things was satisfactory. The question is, what happens after you leave the hospital? And that is a question that we have to spend time on, yeah. uh, not just for Jordan Neely, but people like Michelle Goh and others who have been paying the price for our failures. Yeah, exactly. Jemani uh, Williams, uh, we do need to spend time on it. Come back. Let's talk more uh, about this because it's a very, very important conversation. It's obviously a much more complicated situation uh, than this one incident because there are so many people uh, experiencing crisis and they're slipping through the cracks. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Coming up, a live look at the U.S.-Mexico border crossing in El Paso, Texas, where they have seen a, a record number of crosses this week. We're talking to the White House about what they're expecting over the next couple of days. Then... Harnessing star power in order to power your home. We're going to go inside the nuclear fusion lab that just accomplished the impossible. In our world, the Trump-era health policy called Title 42, which had previously allowed border officials to expel migrants more quickly from the United States due to the pandemic, well, that policy's gone. It's been replaced with a new stricter policy measures from the Biden administration, part of the plan to, is to bar migrants from entering the U.S. for five years if they are found ineligible for asylum. CNN's David Culver is over the border in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. And David, uh, Mexico's foreign minister says there are about 10,000 migrants in this city just south of El Paso. What are you, what are you seeing there? Certainly not 10,000 migrants at this part of the border, Jake. And if you compare what we saw yesterday it, with the scene behind me, I mean, let me first show you the drone. I mean, this is, this is the images from 24 hours ago. Really a drastic change, okay? This is what we saw really for the past several days. Hundreds, if not well over 1,000 people who were camped out. That is technically on U.S. soil. It's just before the border, border wall, but right after the barbed wire that was put up by Texas National Guard. So they were there camped out for some several hours, several days, some weeks, with limited access to, to food and water. And what we have seen in the past 24 hours, let me compare now those images with what we're seeing live right now, and that is, I would say, just a few dozen at most, maybe even less than that, of migrants who have 
still remained up there and they're being processed as we speak. And so you'll probably see in the live images as well these three big dumpsters. And that's filled with a lot of the personal belongings that the migrants come with and they cannot bring with them into the processing facilities and detention center on the U.S. side. So they shed a lot of that. They're thrown into dumpsters and then they continue on usually into buses. And what happened starting 24 hours ago was we saw big groups of migrants being segregated into families, into unaccompanied minors, and into single men. And up until really early this morning, the single men, and continuing now at this hour, are the last ones being processed, Jake. So you can see the numbers here, certainly on U.S. soil, are not at that 10,000 number. Where those folks are, are mostly in the city center here in Ciudad Juarez on the Mexico side. And those are individuals who certainly have the intention of trying to get over at some point. David Culver in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. Thanks so much. Here to discuss further is retired Rear Admiral John Kirby, who's the spokesman for the White House's National Security Council. Uh, Admiral, good to see you. So there's a lot of criticism from all quarters, Democrats, Republicans, left, right, center, about how the White House has been handling the border situation. Uh, Texas Republican Congressman Pete Sessions, just to grab one critic, summed it up this way on CNN this morning. This is as chaotic as Afghanistan was, and the administration came back and said they were happy with it. There are over 80,000 children that this administration has brought in and released, and they have no clue where they are. How do you respond to that, especially the comparison with the Afghanistan withdrawal? Uh, I think it's uh, it's just incorrigible to compare what we're trying to do uh, with with safe and effective uh, pathways coming into uh, in through the border uh, to what uh, to what happened uh, with Afghanistan. Uh, it is not at all the same situation, and the footage that you just showed demonstrates uh, that it's not chaos down there uh, at the border, at least not right now. We're uh, doing everything we can to strike a right balance here between providing legal pathways into the country, but enforcement of the, our border laws, of our, of our need to have a, a safe and secure border there. Uh, Jake, and, and if the congressman uh, really cared that much uh, about helping with the southern border situation, uh, then he would enjoin his uh, colleagues in the Congress to pass legislation, to pass immigration reform, to dust off and take a look uh, at the immigration reform that the president put on Capitol Hill the day he took office, uh, which has not yet been acted on. Well, but they did pass a a border security bill uh, yesterday. I understand that Democrats in the Senate aren't going to take it up, but they did pass a bill to try to solidify the border. Yeah, they waited until yesterday to put something forward, and it's obviously not going to go anywhere because it's, uh, it, it doesn't provide for the same sorts of safe legal pathways that the president's trying to provide for uh, with the tools, the limited tools that he has available to him. Uh, it, it, you know, and doing it you know, the, night, the night of the expiration of Title 42 just tells you all you need to know about who is actually ready for this change and who wasn't. We've learned that an unaccompanied migrant teenager died Wednesday at a Florida shelter. Yeah. Uh, we also learned in the course of uh, finding out more about that, uh, Priscilla Alvarez found out that a four-year-old migrant child died in mid-March in U.S. custody after she suffered a cardiac arrest and was taken to a hospital in Michigan. Both, both of these children were under the U.S. government's, the Biden administration's care. Uh, are there investigations going on so we find out what happened and make sure it doesn't happen again? Yeah, it's just tragic news. It's heartbreaking. And, and all of us are, are deeply saddened by this. I mean, you never want to see that. 
happen to any child, uh, Jake. I, I think you know that. But uh, obviously, HHS is looking into this. I can't speak for their processes and procedures, but clearly they're going to take a look at this, a hard look at this, uh, to see if we can figure out what, what happened here with this young man. Um, it's, it's just tragic. Uh, and we do everything we can. HHS works really hard uh, to, to take care of uh, the unaccompanied children uh, that, that, are in their, uh, that are in their care. Uh, now, we don't want them to be in that care for very long, and HHS isn't, isn't, it's not designed to, to, to hold children for, uh, for extended periods of time. Uh, we want to get them reunited with their families as fast as we can. Uh, but again, this is very sad and tragic, and, and we'll certainly look into this. Uh, Admiral, while I have you, before you go, um, sources tell CNN that the Biden administration is working to get detained Americans, Paul Whelan and Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, out of Russia, where they're being detained uh, improperly, uh, according to, to the White House, um, and that, that you are looking to other countries to try to find high-value Russian prisoners uh, to swap for Paul and Evan. Are you, are you finding any success uh, are there other countries that might be willing to uh, uh, allow such Russian spies, Russian prisoners to be used in such a swap? What I can tell you, because we don't want to get, get into negotiations in public here, Jake, but I can tell you that we are working very hard uh, to get both Evan and, of course, Paul back with their families where they belong. Uh, and we have, in fact, for in Paul's case, we have a proposal we put forward to the Russians that we continue to urge them to accept so we can get Paul home. We are obviously working just as hard uh, for Evan to get him home as well. Uh, there are lots of different paths, lots of different options that we're looking at and trying to explore. And I think I probably need to leave it right there so we don't, uh, we don't jeopardize those efforts by talking about them too publicly. Is uh, lessening sanctions on Russia on the table to get a prisoner swap? We're going to make sure that whatever sanctions regime we have in Russia is perfectly applied and rightly applied to hold Mr. Putin accountable for his unprovoked invasion of Ukraine and for the atrocities and the war crimes that his troops are conducting against the Ukrainian people. I don't see any change to that. This is about holding him accountable for this invasion, for this unprovoked war. We're going to continue to put that pressure on Mr. Putin. But I will tell you again, without negotiating in public, that we're working very, very hard to try to find solutions to get both Paul and Evan home. Retired Rear Admiral John Kirby, spokesman for the National Security Council. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Donald Trump's latest dig at Governor Ron DeSantis, plus an inside look at the Florida governor's team and the current state of the 2024 Republican presidential race. In our politics lead, Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are set to hold dueling rallies tomorrow in Iowa, site of the first in the nation caucuses for the Republican Party, a preview of the, luck of the likely Republican presidential primary showdown, which has already developed into something of a bitter rivalry between the two men and their campaigns. Trump again slamming DeSantis in a brand new digital ad. The problem with Ron DeSantis is that he needs a personality transplant, and those are not yet available. Ron's foreign trip was a total bomb. They didn't even know what he was doing there. What are you doing here, Ron? Why are you here? It was a mess. Don from Queen, you're on, Queens, you're on the air. That's what he always sounds like, right? You know, he always sounds like he just called into a radio show. Here to discuss Democratic strategist and CNN political commentator Karen Finney, along with former Republican uh, Congressman uh, uh, Joe Walsh. So, um, Joe, let me start with you. Trump's been pretty relentless in his attacks on DeSantis, who is not even yet a declared uh, candidate and really at this point, according to polls, is not much of a threat to him. Uh, Politico's Jonathan Martin writes this about how DeSantis's team sees this quote: "DeSantis's high command recognizes that the 
Catnip for junkies national polling has shifted toward Trump this year, but they believe they retain a fundamental advantage. Quote, everyone knows the majority of the Republican Party wants to move on, said Genera Peck, DeSantis's gubernatorial campaign manager and closest aide. Everyone knows the majority of the Republican Party uh, wants to move on. Do you agree? No. Jake, I love these quotes. Republican voters don't want to move on. Certainly a very sizable percentage of them. You want to move on. You're a Republican who wants to move on. I'm no, but I left the party. So I mean, I, yeah. I either became an independent or there are former Republicans. But no, it, it, look, if DeSantis gets in, he's got the same problem every other Republican challenger has. They can't criticize the front runner. They can't, they're afraid to criticize Donald Trump because they want his voters. I just think it's mission impossible, even for DeSantis. Uh, Karen, do you think um, Democrats want to run against Trump. I mean, I, I, I do, there is a sense of be careful what you wish for, just as yeah. we saw in 2016, right? <laughs> uh, a thousand percent. I was there, had the t-shirt to prove it. Um, but look, I actually think DeSantis will be tough to run against, but I think, again, his, his primary strategy, he's obviously not a declared candidate, but he's running so far to the right. And I think the question will be, can he consolidate Republican Party voters? Because I think one of the things in that story, in that quote you mentioned, what the donors want is not what the grassroots want. That's yeah. true in both parties. How so? Explain. So, I mean, donors are thinking more about electability. We want to win. We want to take back the White House. Grassroots tend to be more passion-driven. This is the person we want. We love him. So if your grassroots is still with Team Trump and not ready yet to, to leave him, or to break up with him, as it were, yeah. I think that creates a real it, problem for the Republican Party. And Jake, maybe I shouldn't bring up the town hall, but I was a you big fan. You can bring fa- up the town hall. <laughs> yes, I was a big fan of the town hall. CNN provided a public service. But look at the town hall. Grassroots loved yeah. Trump's performance the other night. Republican fundraisers scared to death. Well, you know, it's interesting also because there are so many things that Donald Trump did and said in that town hall uh, that I, 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 that not only uh, Repo- uh, Democrats like Joe Biden, but also Republicans like John Thune, number two uh, Republican in the Senate, were saying like that's going to be used against uh, Republicans. That's going to be used against Trump yes. by Democrats. Trump bragging about Roe v. Wade, which look, mm-hmm. you can have that position. It's not going to help you win Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Uh, Trump, you know, all, all this stuff, uh, pardoning January six people, et cetera. It was. It was. It really was. Who do you want to win, Ukraine or Russia? He right. couldn't answer that. But right. the base agrees with him on that. But yeah. here's the thing. That's the same base that DeSantis is also trying mm-hmm. to cultivate. And right. so the, I think one of the th- ways that Democrats are looking at this is it's going to be very hard if you look at, you know, DeSantis wants to run on this ultra MAGA record that he's cultivating in Florida. How you then move to the center and take back the independent voters who switched from Republican to Democrat, folks who've left the Republican Party, that is not clear because I don't. There are a lot of folks who don't agree with many of the things that DeSantis is trying to do in Florida. What, what do you think of DeSantis? Let's pretend that like Donald Trump, just for whatever reason, it was not a candidate anymore. What would you think of Ron DeSantis as uh, as a candidate, as a potential nominee? I think he'd be the favorite because he's Trump. He's the Trumpiest. The base wants a son of a bitch. They want a cruel bully. And that's DeSantis. But I think Karen knows this. DeSantis doesn't play well with people. I think if Trump were out of the picture, you'd see a number of other Republicans get in because they don't think DeSantis is likable, is nice enough. Personable. What do you what do you think of the uh, of the attack that Trump did today that he needs a 
a personality uh, transplant. I mean, that's that's a that's a pretty nasty. It's pretty nasty, but that's what most Republicans believe. Republican donors who've met him have been on the record that he doesn't seem, he can't sit down at a table and, and have a conversation with you. There's real concerns as to whether he can relate to people. And speaking of relating to people, yeah. a different Republican candidate, uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, he's proposing a constitutional amendment, running for president as a Republican. He wants to raise the voting age from 18 to 25. Take a listen. What we're proposing is a constitutional amendment to raise the voting age to 25, but to say that you still get to vote at age 18 so long as you either pass the civics test that immigrants have to pass in order to become naturalized citizens or you do some minimal service to the country. I mean, I guess it's a way to take on the fact that Democrats do better with, with younger I, voters. I, I was just going to say, so basically he's saying, I'm going to try to, again, slice and dice the electorate to get the people I want. Instead of, I don't know, trying to appeal to those voters, taking on issues that they actually care about. Let's just cut them out. I mean, think about the message that sends. We will send you to fight for your country, but you can't vote. You can buy a gun, yeah. but you can't vote. I mean, that's out. It's, it's absurd, and it's pretty blatant on its face that this is a problem with young voters. I mean, d- just to be clear in terms of this. <laughs> he <laughs> did say if you, if you serve in the military, you get to vote. I mean, he, he did say that. I mean, no, no uh, but if, I, if you're 20 years old, right. basically he's Theor- saying, a theoretical theoretically, yes. yes. Yeah. They have a, Republicans have a horrible problem with young people. Something like that would make it a hell of a lot worse. I mean, I, I just it, do you yeah. think it's a serious uh, no. proposal? No, it's just to get attention. It's to get he's third in the polls right now, Jake. So it's to get attention. <laughs> well, so it's working. Right. It We're is talking working. about it. And so it's working. Let, but let, I think it also sorry. I think it also, though, further underscores that this is a challenge for the Republican Party. We also heard reported a couple weeks ago, a donor was at a big Republican donor conference and said, we've got to make sure they can't vote on campus, right? Let's make it harder for young people to vote. Again, Well, they've been doing that. Governors have been doing that for years. For for a very long time. And there's a movement among college kids to actually get the day off to go vote, which I think would be great. But point being, again, rather than let's deal with the fact that a lot of people don't know their social studies as well as they should, that would be one Way to deal with this, and let's let them vote. All right, Karen Finney and Joe Walsh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Crime-ridden, full of homeless encampments. That's a reputation one of America's largest cities currently has. So what's really going on in San Francisco? That's next. In our national lead, San Francisco, California, a city that's been in the headlines for crime, for unaffordability, for its street conditions. In one recent survey, San Francisco residents say they feel less safe now than at any point since 1996. That's according to the city's own controller's office. This week on The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper, our Sunday night magazine show, CNN's Sarah Seidner heads to the Bay Area, a place she once called home, to find out what happened to San Francisco. Here's a little preview. The video of the guy wheeling his bicycle into the Walgreens in San Francisco, loading up and then bicycling out, went worldwide. The mass swarm robberies went worldwide. Even with some high-profile videos going viral, robberies and larceny, which is property theft without threat of violence, were both down in 2022 compared to pre-pandemic levels, according to San Francisco police data. While the number of car break-ins was actually higher in 2017, Auto theft, though, did rise in 2022, the highest it has been in seven years. 
I'll tell you the number one that I hear. Yeah, the number tell me. one that I hear. It isn't. It isn't. It isn't necessarily violence. It isn't because those it's rates theft. are. It's the car break-ins. Oh, the car break-ins. By far, the thing people yeah. always say is like, "Girl, if you go to the city, don't park your car here, or there, or yes. you know, watch where you park." Yes. How do you combat that? Most people, unfortunately, in some capacity, feel like they either have been or know someone who has been, yeah. you know, a victim. I mean, my car got broken into right in front of my home and then there was nothing in it. So that makes it even worse. It's right. like, I don't even have anything to steal because I know better, right? Yeah. But it's it's a tough thing and we're going to keep working on that to combat it. Joining us now to talk more about her whole story report on what happened to San Francisco is CNN anchor Sarah Seidner. Hey, Sarah. Sarah. Um, are crime rates actually higher in San Francisco or is it just the perception of it? It is a lot of perception especially when it comes to violent crime and more particularly homicides. If you look at San Francisco, which is a seven by seven square mile city, so a small city, they had 56 homicides in 2021 and 2022, respectively. If you look at other cities of the same size, like Indianapolis, Indiana, you will see that they had 271 homicides in 2021. We're talking four times as many. Or Jacksonville, Florida had nearly three times as many with 156 homicides. So when you look at it compared to other cities when it comes to violent crime, no, it doesn't stack up. San Francisco has far fewer. However, when it comes to things, and you heard the mayor herself say, yeah, I have had my car broken into. So petty theft, uh, car crimes, those things have really affected the citizenry there. And seeing people out on the streets in many, many places doing drugs just casually and calmly on the sidewalk where people are walking, that has set people off as well. What about the homelessness uh, problem in San Francisco? It's perceived to be worse uh, than it's been in years. Is, Is it actually worse? Yeah, I think we can easily say that the combination of what happened with COVID, the shutdowns, some of the residents leaving, people being locked up in their homes, uh, and then you saw this explosion uh, of tents that lined the sidewalks in many places, some of it right outside of City Hall. The mayor gave us a very candid interview about what's going on in her city. She used the word BS once during a during a press conference because she said this has to stop. We have to fix this. We have to deal uh, with these incidents. But we also talked to people who were homeless themselves. We talked to people who use drugs themselves and talked about why they came to San Francisco. And not surprisingly, many of them were not from the area. But they told us, look, the drugs are cheap. They're easy to get. And you can use them on the street without worrying about being prosecuted. So there's a lot of things San Francisco is trying to fix. And we get into all that in this hour. I can't wait to watch. Sarah Seidner, thanks so much. And be sure to tune in an all new episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. One whole story, one whole hour. It's a fantastic show. And Sarah's episode airs this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific only on CNN. The Oklahoma governor is trying to cancel Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers. Why he is defunding the state's biggest PBS station. That's coming up. I want you to meet my brother Dave, Hi. his husband Frank, Hi. and my sobrina Mia. I'm so happy that you're all here. Are you kidding? We wouldn't have missed family day for anything. Sweet moment, although maybe not everyone feels that way. Maybe Oklahoma's Republican governor, Kevin Sitt, doesn't. He seems to think that LGBTQ inclusive programming on PBS, such as that example, is, quote, 
indoctrination for kids. And now he has vetoed a bill that would have provided crucial funding to the PBS network in his state. Let's get right to CNN's Oliver Darcy. Oliver, Oklahoma's PBS station per capita is the most watched in the nation. It is available in every county in Oklahoma. Uh, So this would be really devastating. What is PBS saying in response? Yeah, Jake, this is part of a larger trend really playing out in Republican politics these days where these GOP politicians take aim at children's programming, inclusive children's programming, and basically effectively frame it as uh, grooming kids with radical gender ideology. And you've, you've seen it play out in Florida with Ron DeSantis taking aim at Disney, and now it's spreading, of course, to Oklahoma, where the governor there is taking aim at PBS. I'll read you a statement that PBS sent us last night when we asked them for comment. Uh, the, The company says, the threat to funding puts Oklahoma families at risk of losing access to the local free content they trust to help kids reach their full potential. The fundamental goal of PBS Kids remain supporting children as they learn and grow through programming they have come to know and love. Now is not the time to take that away from any child. And Jake, I should also say that the local PBS station is stressing that they play a key role in civil politics. They have a news program that reaches all counties in Oklahoma, and also the state uses them for emergency alerts. And so this is in Oklahoma, Oklahoma where, where it's known as Tornado Alley, and they use the emergency alert system quite a bit, and the PBS station plays a crucial role in that. And so this is all at risk because the governor has vetoed funding unless the state legislature uh, overrides that veto, they're going to have to make some really hard decisions over at that local PBS station. Quickly, yeah. Oliver, if you could, is there some sort of, uh, obviously that Elmo clip is, is, is sweet and, and harmless. Is there some sort of like, is there something I'm missing here? Is there some sort of like lewd, lascivious PBS show about some community, like the trans community that like outraged him? I, I, I don't understand. It's, it's hard to understand. And, and he's just basically, he did an interview with Fox News earlier this week where he said that the programming, the LGBTQ inclusive programming doesn't align with Oklahoma values. And so, you know, it, it's, it's baffling. But again, you're seeing this uh, across GOP politics with Ron DeSantis taking aim at Disney, which is an, an intentionally unoffensive brand. Uh, and he, he did that for them speaking out against the don't say gay bill. And so, This is a trend I think you can expect to see a lot more of. Oliver Darcy, thanks so much. In our Earth Matters series now, we're going to go inside a laboratory revolutionizing the way we generate electricity instead of traditional power plants that burn coal and produce gases that contribute to global warming or nuclear power plants that produce radioactive waste that lasts practically forever. These scientists are working to harness a clean and unlimited source of power, just like stars in the sky do. Here's CNN's Bill Weir. Inside this building... Some very smart people built a star on Earth. Not the Hollywood kind, that's easy. No, the burning ball of gas in the sky kind. One of the hardest things humans have ever tried. I was at the airport when my boss called me and I burst into tears. (laughs) Tammy Ma is among the scientists who have been chasing nuclear fusion for generations. Countdown for shot on my mark. Three, two, one, mark. And in the middle of a December night, they didn't. And you only need a tiny little bit of fuel. That's right, yeah. Because our little pellet that sits right in the middle, you can't even see it on this target, is just two millimeters in diameter. That target includes an abundant isotope found in seawater and goes into a chamber about the size of a beach ball in the 60s, but is now a round room 30 feet across 
with 192 massive lasers aimed at the center. Their big laser beam is about 40 by 40 centimeters. Each one alone is one of the most energetic in the world. Every time we do a shot, it's a thousand times the power of the entire U.S. electrical grid. But your lights don't flicker at home when we take a shot. So what we're doing is taking a huge amount of energy and compressing it down just into nanoseconds. All right. So it's about $14 of electricity. The National Ignition Facility then amplifies all that concentrated energy on the target. And if they get it just right, more energy comes out than went in, with no risk of nuclear meltdown or radioactive waste. In a fusion power plant, you would shoot the same target over and over at about 10 times a second, dropping a target in and shooting it with lasers. So you'd need a target loader, like a we machine gun We need a target loader, right? exactly. So there's still many, many technology jumps that we need to make, but that's what makes it so exciting, right? A lot of people were saying you've invested all this money, time to pull the plug because you guys haven't achieved ignition. Right. I mean, it's called the National Ignition Facility, right? <laughs> And, at some um, point, you better at some point get you better ignite. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to replicate the process that's happening on the sun on Earth. It's just really hard. And so, when that happened in December, what it said is that this is actually possible. So it's no longer a question of whether; it's just a question of when that fusion is actually possible. Now, let's get to work. Jake, experts say we are decades away from most people being able to plug into fusion energy, but there is a startup called Helion, which has a machine that's shaped like a dumbbell. They say it can fire plasma rings at each other at a million miles an hour and will generate electricity by next year. In fact, Microsoft, in a first-of-its-kind deal, has already purchased fusion electricity from them in 2028. The future's coming fast, Jake. All right, Bill Weir, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Growing questions and criticism for the White House about the situation at the border. Wolf Blitzer is going to be covering this next in the Situation Room, of course. And, and Wolf, uh, it's not just Republicans uh, getting uh, mad at, with the Biden administration for what's happening. That's right, Jake. Uh, among my guests coming up in the Situation Room is Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar. He represents a border district in Texas, and he's one of the growing number of lawmakers in President Biden's own party who are critical of his migration policies. I'll ask the congressman about the end of Title 42 and what the administration needs to do now to get a handle on the crisis. We'll also get into the political fallout from the border situation, which Congressman Cuellar warns could be driving Hispanic communities away from the Democratic Party. That and a lot more coming up next, right here in the Situation Room. Uh, We'll be watching. Wolf Blitzer, thanks so much. Still ahead on the lead, how a herd of cows became crime solvers. We are in utter disbelief. In our national lead, a herd of crime-fighting cows helped North Carolina police officers find a suspect by leading authorities to the suspect's hiding spot. Police say the suspect, 34-year-old Joshua Russell Minton, ran from officers during a traffic stop. He ditched his car and sprinted into a field. The cows apparently felt behooved to help police by finding Minton's hiding spot and communicating with law enforcement as best they could, mooing until officers followed them to the suspect location. Now, it's unclear if the cows had any specific beef with the suspect. I could make a few more cow puns here, but I don't want to milk it. Be sure to tune in this Sunday to CNN State of the Union. My colleague, Dana Bash, will be talking to the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, plus Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois and the Chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee, 
Mark Green of Tennessee, then Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyemo. It is a packed show, 9 a.m. and noon Eastern, only here on CNN. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper, Blue Sky. If you got an invite to the beta, you can tweet the show at the lead CNN if you ever miss an episode of the show. You can listen to the lead once you get your podcasts all two hours sitting there like a big, delicious hamburger. The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer continues right now. I'll see you Monday. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.